We're reading John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished when I say to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended to, ascended to heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture um, that we just know so well. Um, that, that are just so, you know, just so tied to our existence as Christians that we just know them. And John 3.16 is such a passage. I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, think about the guy with the rainbow hair at all the football games. You know the guy, particularly those of y'all my age and older. There was always a guy who would go to football games, and he would have a John 3.16 sign, and he would always sit in the end zone. And when they kicked the field goal, you'd see the crazy guy with the crazy hair with the John 3.16 sign. I mean, John 3.16 is one of those verses that we just know. I mean, it's, there, are, there are biblical concepts and biblical phrases that go beyond the church. David and Goliath. Even if you don't know the story of David and Goliath, you got a general concept of the story. I, we were watching um, the great theological film, The Avengers, last night. And, you know, Tony Stark is fighting Iron Man's fighting the Leviathan. By the way, Leviathan, a biblical reference, fighting the Leviathan. And he can't pierce the shell of the creature. So he tells his artificial intelligence, Jarvis, said, Jarvis, you know the story of Jonah? And Jarvis says, that's not a good idea. So what does Tony Stark do? He flies into the mouth of the big creature and blows it up from the inside. Just as Jonah went into the belly of the whale, Iron Man goes into the belly of the critter and kills it. Well, except Jonah didn't kill the whale. So that's not a perfect analogy. But there was Jonah mentioned in a pop culture film. So there are certain concepts, certain verses, certain phrases that in many ways have stepped outside of the Christian experience. And John 3.16 is one of those. A lot of folks know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would not perish, that whoever believed would not perish and have eternal life. We know that. I'm not preaching on that. Because that's what people expect you to preach on this day. John 3, 16. We're not going to, I'm going to talk about it in a second, but in a little bit different way. This is one of those passages that sometimes we just are so familiar with that we don't really pay attention to it. Like, that was me. Honestly, when, 
when I was preparing the sermon or praying over this passage, I thought, okay, I'm probably going to preach on John 3.17 for God did not send the Son to con- in the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. That's kind of where I thought I was going to go. But as I read and prayed and read and prayed and read and prayed, I felt my eyes going to a different part of the story. Y'all, I think it's so important when we read Scripture that we don't get too familiar with it. Because sometimes we get so familiar with Scripture, at least maybe it's just me, we get so familiar with Scripture that we don't always pay attention. Sometimes my greatest struggle in reading the Bible is to be present. You know, because I'll start reading and I'll start thinking about what i got to do at work tomorrow. Or I'll start thinking about the kids. Or I may have this new cat we have on top of my head trying to act like a cat. You know, it's really hard sometimes in our spiritual life to be fully present in front of God. At least it is for me. Maybe I've got that. I tell people, I don't have ADD. I have ADD. Ooh, squirrel. You know? So sometimes when we read Scripture, particularly a passage like this one, it's really important for us to just stop take a breath and read it like we've never read it before. Don't read John 3 saying, oh, we're going to get to verse 16 in a second. Because if you do that, you might miss what God wants to say to you before we get to that part. This is such an interesting passage. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Uh, The Pharisees were teachers of the law. In, In Israel, there were two types of religious leaders you've heard of primarily. Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees were the, were the high priest in the temple. All of the priests in the temple were Sadducees. Sadducees were the ones who were in charge of the formal worship within the temple. Pharisees were the rabbis that taught in the synagogues. To use our southern vernacular, Sadducees were city preachers, Pharisees were country preachers. Sadducees taught at the big downtown, big steeple church. Sadducees, Pharisees were down at the country church. Pharisees were the ones who taught the law. Sadducees were in the temple. So Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He would have, he would have had a synagogue most likely that he taught at. So he was going to Jesus. By the way, there's something very important in John's gospel. Notice, if you have your, if you have your Bibles out, Notice when Nicodemus goes to Jesus. John Moore's guy's about. When, when does Nicodemus go to Jesus, John Moore? At night. That's really important. In John's gospel, there's always a huge correlation between knowledge of Jesus and sight and light. There's always, a, to be in the dark, 
doesn't just mean that it, so he comes at night. Night's when it's dark. That doesn't just mean that Nicodemus goes to Jesus at nighttime, but it means he goes to Jesus without knowing who Jesus really is. He goes in the darkness. He doesn't truly see Jesus. He doesn't truly understand Jesus. He doesn't truly know Jesus. We see that in the teaching today. So Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. He goes to Jesus in the darkness. He goes to Jesus not understanding who he is. And by the way, don't we all approach Jesus like that? Don't we all approach Jesus sometimes not knowing? Don't we always approach Jesus sometimes not fully understanding? Even the disciples until Pentecost Sunday didn't fully understand Jesus' teaching. Nicodemus comes not knowing fully who Jesus is, but comes willing to listen, willing to learn, willing to understand. Sometimes the first step in knowing who Jesus is is to admit that we're not Jesus. To admit that we don't know it all. That we don't understand it all. Sometimes the most important thing we can do when we approach the word of God is to come with humility. And listen. Understand. Seek to learn. That's what Nicodemus does. And so Jesus begins to teach him. He says, you must be born again. And he goes, huh? The wind blows where it may. Just like the spirit does. And Nicodemus goes, huh? He's not getting it. The first part of the text, Jesus is teaching him, and it's just going completely over Nicodemus' head. Like, he is not getting it. It is not making a lick of sense. He doesn't understand a bit of what Jesus is telling him. So notice what Jesus does then. He says, this is revealed to me by my Father. And then he says in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever would believe in him would not perish. So, so Nicodemus is not getting it. Nicodemus is not getting it. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to an example from Jewish history. Jesus goes to an example because Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. Nicodemus understood the Old Testament. Nicodemus understood their stories. So Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so Nicodemus at that point goes, oh, that makes sense. But we hear Jesus talk about a serpent. We go, huh? I love this story that Jesus references here. There's a great story in the Old Testament where, you know, if you ever think you you struggle with God and you get it wrong and you're imperfect and you don't quite have it all figured out, go read the Old Testament. You'll walk away feeling a lot better about yourself because God love them. They struggled, y'all. They, did, they got it wrong more than they got it right. They really did. They blew it so many times. And the story Jesus references here is a story in the Old Testament where, the, I don't remember exactly what they did. They did something stupid. I don't remember what it was, but something stupid. Oh, they were back-talking. They were back-talking God, back-talking Moses, back-talking everybody. So these snakes come to bite, and it says, the, the Hebrew talks about how these snakes have mouths of fire. These snakes come, and they start biting them. And I'm going to tell you, at that point, I'm just dead. I don't do snakes. I don't, I don't do, I think the grand story of, of Adam and Eve is this. If Eve, don't sit there and have a conversation with a snake. If you're sitting there and the snake starts talking to you, just run. Don't engage him in conversation. Don't ask him how he's doing. Just, just go away. If Eve had done that, think how much better life would be nowadays. So they got these snakes coming after them, you know, and they start biting them. 
And of all the ways, of all the ways that God chooses to save the people in that moment, God has Moses make a serpent of bronze, attach it to a stick, and has Moses lift up the snake. And all who look upon the serpent that Moses has lifted up are saved. So just as Moses lifted up the serpent and all who looked to the serpent would be saved, so does Jesus reference his coming death at the cross. The Son of Man is lifted up. And whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. When Nicodemus isn't getting it, Jesus goes to a story from the Old Testament and says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent and all who looked to the serpent would be saved from death, in the same way, when I am lifted up, all who look to me, all who believe in me shall be saved. That's a beautiful story. But I think in that story, we see a snapshot of how God works. We see a snapshot of God's grace and of God's plan. Let's hit rewind. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. Who was it that tricked Eve? Serpent. Eve then goes to Adam. Adam puts a real strong fight there. If you read the text, you see that Adam really put up a good fight. He just, okay, sure, I'll eat this. The serpent's cursed. Adam's cursed. Eve's cursed. And by the way, if you read the text, all the creation is cursed with it. So there's just curses all around for their act of disobedience. But where did the, where, who was the instigator of this? Where did it all start? The serpent. The serpent was the one that started all this. The devil started all this in the serpent. That's where the whole, that's when the train left the station was that serpent. So, that's why I think it's so significant. What in that story did Moses then use to save the people? A serpent. Even the serpent who caused the fall is used by God as an agent of healing. Our God is in the redemption business. Our God is in the healing business. And our God is in the restoration business. If you look at the whole of Scripture, you're going to see over and over and over and over again how God uses the mistakes of humanity, how God uses the failings, how God uses the brokenness, how God uses sin to bring forth redemption. God is always in the redemption and in the restoration business. That is the whole story of Scripture. Last Sunday was Pentecost. On Pentecost Sunday, I was picking with ants about this before the service started. Uh, the last two weeks, we, we had Pentecost Sunday, where the Bible says Peter was out there preaching, and, um, and, and, and the, um, uh, the, the folks say, they must be drunk. They, and, and Peter says, this is too early. Well, the week before that, we had the story of Samuel and Eli. And if you remember how, how Samuel was born, Hannah was at the altar 
praying for God to bless her with a child. And scripture says she prayed so hard that Eli thought she was drunk. So if you hadn't been in the spirit so far that somebody thinks you're drunk, we need to talk about your faith. So I want to hear somebody thinking next week, that all those drunk folk from St. Matthew's at Walmart acting like loving Jesus. So and I say that jokingly, but there's something to be said about so focused upon Jesus that folks think there's something a little bit weird about us. If you tell folks, you tell somebody, said, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. And they go, really? It's not a good sign. You shouldn't have to tell folks you're a Christian. It should be so apparent in the lifestyle that you lead. But anyway, on Pentecost Sunday, many people from all over the world came together because they were in Pentecost for the Jewish holiday. And what happened? The many people heard the gospel proclaimed as one. The many entered in and left as one. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Remember the story of Babel? What happened at Babel? One people entered in, and through their sin and through their pride, the one left as many because of their sin. The one, the one group got separated and became many people, many cultures, many races, many languages. So at Babel, the one became many. At Pentecost, the many became one. Do you see what God does? That God's bringing healing and God's bringing restoration. That God is restoring what sin has corrupted and what sin has taken. So just as the serpent was the one that caused the original fall, in Genesis, in Genesis, then in Numbers, the serpent's the one who brought salvation and healing. And now that very serpent is the one who is, Christ is comparing himself to to bring forth salvation. That God takes what sin corrupts. God takes what sin has broken. God takes what sin has caused and uses it for redemption. That God is always in the healing business. God is in the restoration business. God's in the salvation business. And even the serpent, even the serpent that started all this, is now, through the grace of God, linked to healing, to salvation. You don't believe me? What's the image you see in a lot of hospitals and medical things for healing? That serpent. Talk about things that transcend Christianity, that transcend the faith. Even the serpent has become an emblem of healing. There's not a single broken thing that God can't fix. There's not a single broken thing that God can't use, including me or you. There's not a single part of your life, no matter how broken it may feel, how, no matter how imperfect it may feel, no matter about how bad it may feel, that God, through his grace, can't redeem. Romans 8, 28, all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's not a single part of your story, not a single part of your life, not a single part of your existence, not a single tragedy that, you're, that you've gone through that God, through his grace, cannot use to help somebody else out. That God cannot use to bring glory to himself and be used for your good. 
There's not a single part of your story, not a single part of your life, not a single part of your existence that God can't use. Even the serpent is used by God and used for his glory. We see in our churches symbols like that cross there, don't we? Of all the ways that we humans have figured out how to kill each other, the cross might be the worst. It was, my, my granny, um, we had a, she had a bunch of pecan trees up beside her house. And every year, she'd get her twenty-two out, and she'd shoot a crow. She'd then take that crow, tie a rope around his foot, and hang the crow from the pecan tree every year. I never knew why she did it. I thought she was just crazy. My mama told me she did it to make an example to the other crows. I said, do the crows know that? <laughs> and then the mama changed the subject. <laughs> so, so my granny, in her own unique Bogotan logic, would shoot a crow and hang the crow from the tree to show the other crows don't mess with her pecans. She was making an example. Okay. If Rome wanted to make an example of you, they crucified you. You ever wonder why Jesus was crucified outside the city gates? So when everybody came into Jerusalem, they'd see him strung up on the cross. They crucified you naked, typically. They were making an example of you. Do not mess with Rome. Do not, put, do not spit in the wind and don't, put, don't tug on Superman's cape. Do not mess with Rome. It was a terrible, awful, painful, humiliating way to die. Of all the ways we come with to kill each other, that's probably the worst. What is the cross now? A symbol of peace, of healing, of restoration, of salvation, of forgiveness. Even the serpent is used to show God's mercy. Even the cross is used to show God's mercy. Even me and you in our life, in the midst of our imperfections, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our problems, even us, we can be used by God to show his goodness to a world in desperate need of salvation. If he can use the serpent, if he can redeem the cross, he can use us. There's not a single part of your life, of your story, of your failing, of your faults, of your everything that God, through his sovereign grace, cannot use. But therein lies the rub. That's one of my professors used to always say in seminary. We got to give it to him. He can't use what we haven't released. He can't use the things we've not allowed him to redeem. He can't use the broken places if we don't allow him to bring healing there. Friends, today, there's not a single part of your life that our loving and gracious God can't use to bring healing to you and to bring healing to others. 
But first, you've got to let go of it. First, you've got to give it to him. He can't redeem what we don't give. He can't redeem what we don't release. So today, friends, in your life, what is that area that you just don't want to let go of? What is that area of brokenness that you keep holding on to? What is that area that maybe you think you don't even deserve forgiveness of? What is that area that's so tender, that's so tragic, that it hurts to even think about it? God, through his grace, can redeem even the serpent. God, through his grace, can redeem and use even our broken places. By the grace of our loving God, may we allow him to have access to those places. And by the grace of our God, may we turn it over to him. Let's pray.